My guest today is David Bodanis, who actually had the insouciance to write a biography of an equation, E equals MC squared, which is essentially about Einstein and his work. He's written another book about electricity, but E equals MC squared. What made you think that you could actually write a biography of an equation? Um, a couple of years ago, I had actually uh, quit writing, and I was walking down the King's Road in London, and I just stopped in a bookstore where there was a big stack of books with a mathematical symbol pi on the cover. And the book was pretty schlocky, it wasn't that good, but there were stacks of it. And I realized that people want to find out what are the mysteries behind things that are represented by a simple equation. And I thought, well, that book didn't work, but what if I did something about an equation that had real power and told the true story? And that's when I got the idea. Of course, it's about people. Yeah. A series of wonderful biographies. Einstein, obviously, but also one of the people in, in that uh, extraordinary book, Emily de Chatelet. She was one of my heroes. Stunning person. Tell us about her. I, Emily was one of my favorites. Um, I loved discovering her in that book. It, I felt like someone out of the Da Vinci Code. I saw a little footnote about an interesting thinker in the early 18th century, a woman who had been in a sword fight and was a lover of Voltaire. I found out later she taught Voltaire most of what he knew in philosophy and in bed. They created a research institute at a chateau in eastern France, and it was about 100 years above its time. They did things on the conservation of energy and the, the, the nature of, uh, of energy and also just advanced concepts in mathematics and in physics. But at the end of her life, something happened. She got a deeper idea than anything she had ever had, a really fundamental way of taking Newton forward from the 17th century, really a link up to Einstein in the 20th century, fundamental notions. And she got pregnant, not by Voltaire. And uh, at that time, being pregnant in your 40s was the death sentence. Now, sentence of, course, of death almost. Yeah, pretty much. Now, of course, it isn't, but her, her friends, people died in childbirth very often. And as you got older, it was near certain. So she had five months left, four months left, three months left. And Voltaire said she wasn't angry. She was just very sad to know she had to leave before she was ready. And she wanted to finish this book. She'd work until 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. By the end, she'd stay up till 5 a.m., put her arms in buckets of cold water to stay alert, always dressed nicely with diamonds, candles on the table, scribbling away. And in September 1749, she finished the book. Um, I found the document that she wrote to the King's librarian asking uh, to keep it, crucial for later developments in theoretical physics. She went into labor that night, and she and the baby died uh, that week. Voltaire was stricken. He said, I've lost the half of myself. How is it that someone who's a giant in science, in European science, in world science, is hardly known at all these days. For a little while, her legacy continued. Everybody knew about Madame de Châtelet. She corresponded with the Royal Society. She, was, um, she won competitions in France. She was, she was really a big thinker. But it didn't fit. There was something wrong with it. Women weren't supposed to do that. Because if it turns out that a woman can be step out of the traditional categories, if one woman could do it, maybe other women could do that. They didn't like that happening. So everybody started sort of pushing her down, especially after Voltaire died. Immanuel Kant wrote an essay saying, it's ridiculous to think she could be a thinker. Why, it would be as ridiculous as a woman having a beard. Well, of course, this is going to be your book for next year. Yes. And we've been talking about E equals MC squared, in which she does a star appearance. Yeah. Your present book about electricity now, put us in the picture. What if electricity failed here in Australia, coast to coast, for at least a week? How would we notice? Um, I think there would be many fewer uh, Australians at the end of a week without any electricity whatsoever than there would be before. You probably wouldn't have mass deaths in a week. That would probably take a few weeks. A hundred years ago in Sydney, if there had been no electricity, total blackout. It wouldn't have been so bad. Some refrigeration, some light bulbs. 
Um, people could walk upstairs. Uh, ships still brought food in with steam. Uh, farms were uh, horses, I, I suppose. Maybe some steam tractors. It wouldn't have been that important. Even 50 years ago, I think the city could have been okay. But now, think about it. You couldn't pump petrol, because you need electric pumps for that. Uh, you couldn't use any of the high buildings. But also vaccines would go on hospitals, air conditioning, of course, uh, x-rays. Imagine police um, radios going down, 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 being unable to recharge any of your cell phones, computers going. People would be locked to where they were. And um, you couldn't use money to the extent that people use uh, credit cards and uh, cash machines. It would bring us way back to a different time. If we had 10 years to prepare for it, then we'd be okay. But if it happened instantly, we'd be in trouble. Is it likely to happen? Do you think it could? Possibly. With privatization and um, uh, competition among electricity generators, there's very little concern to have uh, backups. So it's very hard, as you know, to get power lines across new areas. And it's a lot of uh, problems if you build new generators. So our system is very tight, doesn't have much redundancy. Um, I hope it never happens that all electricity goes. Um, if it does, um, we'd have to depend on the kindness of all our neighbors. Well, that's how you set the stage, and I found it absolutely wonderful, because you're making a picture of how incredibly dependent we are yeah. in just, what, uh, three, four generations. That's it. But just like your other books, this is a story of people and I was absolutely stunned to find how many... <laughs> there, there actually were in the story of electricity. Morse, of Morse code fame, very nasty man. Yeah. Thomas Edison, the inventor. Now, we, we knew he was uh, a bit of a feral bastard. Uh, a few other people, Shockley, mm -hmm. the person in the IT revolution. Tell us about some of the, the nasty people. Uh, who, would, who would you like to start with? We have well, an abundance of jerks. If you like, why there are so many in the story. Yeah, what happens is um, somebody who's really good, if they, um, if they have one idea that isn't developed or that somebody takes from them, that's fine, they'll have more ideas. So someone like Einstein or Niels Bohr can be very generous. They have many cracks at it. Someone who's mediocre realizes they only have one chance. And often that chance won't even be something that comes from them. If they don't steal this thing from one other person, all their dreams of glory are going to disappear forever. Um, so everybody, the nasty people are nasty in surprisingly interesting different ways. Samuel Morris was a uh, religious maniac. He believed that there was a secret conspiracy. When I grew up, I was a little boy, I was taught that um, Samuel Morris invented the telegraph and the Morse code. I was also taught that the President of the United States was the smartest man on Earth. Not all of the things I learned as a child are true. Um, Morris was a religious maniac. He hated Catholics. He ran for mayor of New York on a program of persecute Catholics, which in a big Irish Catholic city is not real smart. I mean, luckily, New Yorkers are smart. He got hardly any votes. So he thought Protestant America had to fight back with um, some way of communicating at the speed of light, super fast, to get back. So he thought of the telegraph. It was easy to think of the telegraph. There were very nice telegraphs working in Germany and England at the time. There was a, a, a bluff frontiersman in America, a guy I really like. Reminds me of some of my uncles named Joseph Henry, who had a really nice working one, one working at Princeton. This guy had been a, a forester and a surveyor in Upper New York State in Canada. And Morris went to visit him and said, could you explain how it works? And Joseph Henry explained how he had built it and showed all the parts working. And then Morris said to him, what's your view about patents? And Joseph Henry explained that in a country where people are sharing in a frontier society, clearly nobody should take out patents. You should share with everybody. It's for our own good as Americans to not have patents. Samuel Morris knew what was for his own good as one individual, so he took out a patent on it. Turned out there was a twist. Joseph Henry had a wonderful life. He helped found the Smithsonian. When he died, he was honored and respected, had a good life. 
Samuel Morris had to spend his whole life nervously defending himself in court cases about it. So what happened was that Morris, by hating Catholics, helped push the telegraph, even though he didn't invent it, and ended up transforming America into exactly the country, which was, put it this way, it was everything that Joseph Henry wanted and everything that Samuel Morris hated. Yes. Jumping forward a bit to the uh, computer revolution, the other really nasty person who strikes me is Shockley, who of course is tied up with the transistor story. Yeah. But what happened with him is fascinating that um, he was such a, a slimy, nasty, racist person that whenever he set up a company and hired the best and the brightest, they left and formed their own kind of spin-off companies. Yeah. And out of that came in an orchard, Silicon Valley. Exactly. He was working at a Bell Labs in New Jersey. Uh, Shockley was so arrogant, it's difficult to emphasize. Uh, not only was he a racist and, and all that, that goes without saying, but he thought that his children were genetically inferior to him, his own children. I mean, the guy was a fruit pie. Well, it turns out there were two guys working under him who invented the uh, transistor. And these were, one was from Michigan, one had been a farmer and rancher in, in Oregon State. Um, and Shockley couldn't bear that these people had trumped him and were better, so he lied. He tried to grab the credit and say that it was his idea and all that stuff. Anyways, after a while, people at, in, at Bell Labs couldn't bear him. So he left, and like you said, he went all the way to the apricot groves in, um, well, what was then uh, just a nice valley outside of San Francisco. Many top engineers didn't know that he had lied. They heard, oh, here's a man who invented the transistor. So they went over there to that place with a beautiful climate to work with him. They came, they saw what he was like nasty piece of work, nasty unpleasant man. So they all left. And people like Gordon Moore, creator of Intel, Noyce, who developed the integrated circuit, people would come in and then he would like spin them out and they would splay out. But of course they loved the climate, so they all stayed. And that was the origins of Silicon Valley. He was the only person I know to make a startup at that time um, who failed to make any money whatsoever from it. We must talk about someone who's actually nice. Yes. Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, I he's my the favorite. The story of his romance absolutely exquisite. He's associated with the telephone, but tell us how the romance really kicked I was, it off. I, was, I began writing this book about three years ago when I was in a difficult spot. I, I was going through the most unpleasant of divorces, and I thought I can either be, end up all bitter and twisted, or I can look forward and really believe that love can arise afresh and love can conquer all. So I remember looking through my sources and said, David, find, find a love story which works. And lo and behold, I found that um, Alexandra Grambell was the man. We think of Alexander Crambell as this boring, dead white male with embarrassing facial hair, but he wasn't really. Uh, that's only when he was old and famous. But in his, uh, in his great invention days, he was in his 20s. He was a Scottish immigrant with no money in America. His mother had him deaf, so he was a teacher of the deaf. And uh, one of the big problems then is that uh, children were often hit by big uh, coaches and carriages slamming down the streets, because if you're stone deaf, you can't hear it at all. So he began to give the children little balloons to carry. You know if you hold a balloon, if somebody makes a noise near you, you can feel the vibration. So the kids would hold the balloon, and if there was a vibration, they would look behind, and they would know to go to the side. So he also had his students, they would touch uh, his throat, or he would touch their throat. And as he made different sounds, there were different types of vibrations in your throat. But one of the students, when he was in his mid-twenties, there was a girl who was just under 20, named Mabel. Mabel Hubbard. And um, they had this very sweet romance because, of course, they were very genteel and very polite, and they never said what they felt for each other, but what they felt was very clear. And he went to her house. She, oh, the complication was her family owned much of Boston, Massachusetts. They were filthy rich. And he banged on the door of her house on the island of Nantucket and said, I want to see your daughters during a lightning storm and everything. And the mother said, she's under, uninterested in you. She's written us a letter. She doesn't care. Please have the decency to leave us alone. And he went back to his hotel room. I found the letter that he wrote. And he said, if I... 
if I can invent something that'll make me rich and famous, maybe the, the family will let me in. And he went back to the idea about the vibrations of the throat. And this is what I love in Electric Universe. Instead of just having random stories, which are of no connection to the science, you're like, and you say, but seriously, and get into the science, the personal stories are the essence of the science. Those vibrations in the throat that he had felt with Mabel and Mabel had felt with him got him thinking. When you blow on a piece of parchment, it would vibrate also. If you make an M sound, mm, it'll vibrate one way. If you make a K sound, it'll vibrate another. And he thought, well, what if I connected with the wire to another piece of parchment? If they're quite close to each other, then the first one will shake, and the second one will shake the same way. Extend the wire. Maybe 10 feet, they'll shake. Maybe 100 feet, maybe 1,000 feet, maybe 10 miles. It was the development of the telephone. And he went back and he had this invention. And he found out that Mabel actually wasn't against him at all. Well, she married Alec Bell. And they had lilies and lilacs at the wedding, and he gave her a little silver model of a um, telephone. And he also gave her about a 1,000 shares of stock in a little company he was forming. It's now worth several billion dollars. You talk about the science, and you talk about uh, the wires, the telephone, the cables and the telegraph story, and it's all dependent on electricity, a flow of electrons. Now, the question you pose, which I think is a very interesting one, if it is a flow of electrons, and let's say I am talking to you, you're in England, not Chicago where you were born, but you're in England, and I'm in Australia, and I don't stop talking, and there's this huge rush of electrons building up, you know, so you get a logjam of electrons at the other end. Why doesn't this happen? Well, that's it, because when you're a kid, you think, or as most grown-ups, you think, oh, electricity is kind of like water. You, you push something through. So just like you said, if you're talking, how come I don't get a huge pyramid of electrons falling out of the phone? Like, oh, Dad, what's that? And you think, well, I'm talking with Robin. He's got a lot of electrons there. <laughs> and it's like uh, Australia is depleted of electrons. What happens is even weirder. There's an invisible force field, and that's what goes down a wire. It turns out that if, um, if somebody has a death wish and licks their fingers and sticks them in an electric socket, which I strongly don't recommend. Don't do this do at home. Don't do this at home. If you do that, what happens is um, uh, what, what you'll die from is not electrons that come out of the wall and go through your body, but rather this invisible force field comes out of the wall, goes through your body, and any loose electrons in your body get shaken back and forth, including, of course, the ones in the lungs or the heart, and that's what stops your heart. So what comes out of the wall socket, what travels along, what travels along a telephone, is this invisible rippling wave. And whenever it goes through something like wood or plastic, where electrons are stuck really tight, it just goes right over them, like a wind going over um, the yellow dandelion uh, seeds when the dandelion's all bright yellow. But if it goes into metal, that, that rippling invisible force field, it's like the electrons in a metal are sort of like the white, um, very brittle uh, seeds of a dandelion when it's time for them to release in the wind. The, the wind just blows them off. That wind going across is called a voltage. And uh, in metal, it just throws electrons off. That's how radar works, that's how light works, that's how all sorts of things work. But how could it go at such an incredible speed? We, we have this great arrogance as human beings. We're used to um, uh, traveling at a certain speed, we're used to being at a certain height, and we think, ha, Dogs are quite short, ants are teeny tiny. Oh, they're little, miniature nothings. But it turns out we've only been exploring the smallest corner of the universe. We live at speeds that go from zero to maybe a few hundred miles an hour, with our space shuttle a few tens of thousands of miles an hour. The universe is much bigger than, um, than most of us ever imagined. What I love about astronomers and some of the great physicists, they were willing to explore there. We're in this tiny corner of low speeds. All above us is this universe of much bigger rushing speeds. And that's what people managed to access in those strange little experiments in the 1800s. Yes, well, one of the things that you hinted at just now is radar and the adaptation of the electricity story going to war and going to all sorts of other places. 
tell us a bit of the story of Robert Watson Watt. Yes, and there was a man named Watson Watt there who was in his mid-40s, a very dangerous age, because he had been a promising student. He was actually a distant descendant of James Watt, of steam engine fame. And he said, he said, I have a, a, I was in a boring middle part of life, in a middle relationship, in a middling job, and he wanted to do something better. And it turns out many countries around the world had discovered radar, but nobody was really concerned with using it as a big, powerful military defense. England, of course, had a different attitude. They were used to being a small, isolated island, used to be the Royal Navy could protect them. Now they wanted something to protect them from the air. So he got a request to his office. Can we make death rays that'll stop an enemy? And he said, no, you can't maybe, maybe you can't make death rays. But he realized um, you can actually have these strange things of vibrations. You can send these invisible, invisible vibrations to the air. And if an enemy airplane is going along, even if it's hidden in clouds, these vibrations will touch the electrons in the metal wing of the airplane and shake it back and forth, back and forth. And those shaking electrons will themselves send a signal back to you. So an enemy airplane, when it's hit by radar, becomes a radio transmission station. Right. And it begins to broadcast, here I am, over here, over here, guys, over here. He thought this would be great. And he thought, ooh, if he sends this to the air ministry in London, he might get a free day pass on British Rail. They might give him a little chit for a sandwich. In fact, he became Sir Robert. Now, we're talking about people, and we're talking about people because they feature so much in yeah. your work as... Um, emblems of what science does. It's a yes. human activity. Yeah. And yet the other day there was a survey published in The New Scientist showing that 78% of Brits, and I'm sure the story is the same in Australia, cannot name a single scientist. Uh, what do you think of that? It's a shame. Um, some of it is that it's a shame because you want to honour the people who did the science. On the other hand, there, it's a shame for a deeper reason. If you can't name a scientist, um, Watch the show now. If you can't name a scientist, then you're incapable of judging correctly when someone like Bush says carbon dioxide has no effect on the Earth's atmosphere. Um, trees, for example, they, if you go back several hundred years, there was an experiment. Somebody put a tiny little sapling in a big uh, vat of dirt, and they poured water in it. And um, the tree grew from like a few ounces to about 85 pounds, the course of several years. The question is, where did that 85 pounds of solid, chunky mass come? It didn't come from the soil. If you measure the soil, it weighs the same before and after didn't come from the water, came from the air. There's this stuff floating around the air that sticks and actually makes the solid bulk of the trees. It's carbon dioxide, of course, the carbon, makes the carbon of trees. So all the forests that you see when you fly over the right parts of Australia or fly over um, uh, Africa or fly over much of the US, those forests are sucking in incredible amounts of carbon from the air. And then when the forests die and get squashed underground, they lead to coal and oil. Well, the coal and oils that we burn is the compressed um, results of thousands of years of those forests, tens of thousands of years of those forests. So think of all that carbon that was sucked into the trees, goes down and is compressed. We're like puncturing that and letting it all gush out. So what was 10,000 years of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that goes into the trees, we're now letting it out, burning it on motorways and highways around the world in just a year or two. So when you have that vision, which is not complex science, you can understand, oh my goodness, if we burn these fossil fuels, we're taking the Earth's atmosphere from thousands of years of carbon and we're gushing it all out now. I see why it's dangerous. Oh, I didn't understand before. But if you're unaware of it and are just into other things, then the wool can be pulled over your eyes by um, higher tax for the uh, energy companies. If people through the programs we make, through the books you write, can see that the human story is built into science, will that make a difference to the kind of decision-making, the kind of appreciation that you describe? Um, I think the human story can help people um, 
uh, become more interested in it, because you track along the human story and learn about the science. The human story can also remind people that science isn't pure. Uh, it isn't intrinsically bad, nor is it intrinsically good, but motivations for who gets glory and how things are used will depend very much on motivations of um, envy, uh, power lust, also kindness and generosity. But they'll see science as, as a living, living activity. And of course, that's why you get so many baddies in your lineup. We've, we've probably mentioned too many baddies, and some of the remarkable, sweet people like Michael Faraday. Yeah. Also, to some extent, Lord Kelvin, William Thompson. He was a nice he was, man. He was quite a sweetie. He helped uh, lay the cables under the Atlantic and uh, get the communication going across the Atlantic. Marconi was a bit of. John, yeah. Uh, he, he also he wasn't that bright. He, yeah. He, he later became a fascist bastard. Yeah. Um, but he, 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 he was good at grabbing fame, but he didn't come up with the key inventions. But on balance, I suppose, more, more baddies than goodies, would you say? It's hard to tell. I, I tried to alternate them in the book and have a range of them. What I liked is that the goodies actually won. Uh, Michael Faraday was a very humble man. He had a bit of a speech impediment. He was Faraday for much of his life, and he was a poor boy. But his religious views were scoffed at at the time in England in the early 1800s. But his religious views led to the notion of these invisible force fields, which were later shown to be true. We use them every time we make a cell phone call. So I loved by talking about him and taking his, his religion seriously. You could really, uh, you learn about the science, and I feel I'm giving homage to this quiet, humble man. Einstein always had a picture of Faraday above his desk yes. in Germany and in America. He yes. really respected him. And James Clark Maxwell. He was also there. He was a good guy. That's right. Uh, uh, but, but in Einstein's study, you yes. had Faraday, Newton, and, and James Clark Maxwell. Yeah. Maxwell, who died quite young, as did Hertz. Hertz helped give me my job in How? radio. How's that? <laughs> well, he helped invent it, didn't he? Exactly. Without that, you wouldn't have it. And he died incredibly young. Yeah. I found his diaries. He'd say things like September 1st, depressed. September 2nd, couldn't get out of bed. September 3rd, got married. September 5th, depressed again. You know, heck of a marriage. And then you get things like October 3rd, interesting experiments at the lab. And he was the one who found that Maxwell's predictions that there's this almost religious invisible force field isn't just the um, rumblings of a hysteric, but is actually true. He actually managed to make these these force fields travel across a lab and shake loose electrons in a piece of metal. He created the first radio waves, um, thus, or he measured them, and thus his name was immortalized as kilohertz and megahertz on the dial. Yeah. David, we began talking about the way in which electricity rules our lives, and in fact civilization couldn't last more than a number of weeks if it simply failed. Do you think we have been too wrapped up irrevocably in this power so that there's no going back? I'd see it, I, I can't see an easy way of uh, taking electricity out of our civilization because it multiplies our forces. Remember I said a while ago that we're very small in the universe compared to the speed of light, which is big and huge. Well, it turns out we're also very big. Electrons are much, much smaller than us. And when they move along, they're, they're like slaves for our purpose. They're like little um, bulldozers or cars, but any one of us can like send, billions or many more billions of them either moving along directly or create force fields that move them along. So we have this enormous power, these servants that do things for us. And without them, our civilization just, just couldn't exist with these population levels. Yes, but surely there's a balance. Instead of being encumbered by all these gadgets and having not just on us and in our pockets, but around every room, as I look around this room now, obviously we're doing something for television, but uh, 
I don't know, there must be about 20 or 30 different things? Oh, I think what'll happen there is as the technologies get more advanced, they become invisible. For example, in most places, um, in a big city, you often are pay no attention to water. Well, if you know in a countryside or if you're poor, you pay a lot of attention to water. Wells and cleaning and boiling and purifying. But in a big city, you turn a tap on, you turn a tap off, that's it. In the same way, electric motors used to be uh, very complicated. They'd be all over the place. You would buy, um, you'd buy one big motor and you put on one attachment to make a grinder, another attachment to make your food, another attachment to like, I don't know, help give a pump for the toilet or something. And now those motors are invisible and just hidden away. Same thing with computers. A really good technology like the uh, Apple's iPad has an, an almost an invisible interface. There's almost nothing between you and the thing you wish to do. So at the moment, we're surrounded by lots of computers and technology, just an intermediate phase. They'll become invisible. They'll be stuck into the background, so you'll barely notice them. They, they won't be irritating. What they about will... the final conjunction where you've got uh, our own electricity via the brain and the nervous system? connected to prosthesis, you know, a false arm yeah. made of plastic, where the thought from the brain, you're actually sending the electricity along the nerves to the machine, which obeys your instructions. Yeah, that's, that leads, I suppose, into the, uh, the last part of the book, and also, for me, the most worrisome part. I end the book talking about electricity in the brain. Uh, Prozac, Viagra, all these things are types of liquid electricity. I talk about, again, through biographical stories. And what all of those do is they allow you to take the person you are and boost or amplify it in particular directions. Uh, at the moment, there's electricity going through our arms and allows us to open and close our fist. If you put a, a, a metal attachment on it, it can be much stronger. Well, that's good if you're a good person. It's bad if you're a bad person. So what electricity and all these technologies are doing is increasing the fluctuations in who we are. Sort of like if a friend of yours gets filthy rich. They can use the money for medical research and decency. They can use it nastily to just push aside virgin uh, uh, timberland to create a house. And electricity and these machines around us just boost what we can do. And if you really trust in the decency of human beings, you'll be happy at that. And if you have some doubts, you'll be a little bit worried. So what should we think of most as we go into this transition to a new, elect to a new electronic age? I like the idea of, of uh, humility. I've been struck that the uh, most powerful scientists, um, such as Newton, Einstein, Faraday, had a sense of humility about what little they knew. Einstein had this image that he was a little boy in a room where uh, the f wall was a book was bookshelves full of books, floor to ceiling, side to side, and it was dark in the room, it was a bit of a fog, and occasionally he might be allowed to go close and just open up one of the books and just peek, and he might see equals MC squared and then have to close the book, and all around him was the rest of knowledge that he didn't know. So we have this notion of humility, that there's subtleties in the way that trees grow, and there's subtleties in the bacteria and other things living on the roots, that there's that, are, that the ocean currents are work together in a complex, subtle way, then we'll be cautious about intervening. Doesn't mean you can't intervene, but you'll work out the complications. Well, if you don't have this humility, you'll say, huh, I want it, I'll break it, I'll grab it. Not being aware of those consequences of what we do. Thank you. Thank you.